as Chris said, we're moving into a, a new year and a new series next Sunday. Excited about that. Um, but many, like many of you, this past week, I took a couple extra days off to be with our family and spend some Christmas time uh, with my kids and my extended family and stuff. And so um, I was uh, lucky enough to find somebody who would come and uh, preach for us today so that I could take that time off. And so really excited today to have Mac Davenport here to preach for us. He's been with us uh, once before. You can give Mac a hand. Uh, he was, he uh, preached for us once before this past year as well, and uh, me and him were just chatting before the service, and he shared with me some really exciting news that they are just in the beginning phases of starting to pray through and plan uh, a new church plant that he's going to be helping plant in Jackson, Missouri. Um, so we can be joining him in prayer for that. Uh, we always love to see more churches going out and raising up the glory of God. So let's be praying for him and for his family and for this church as they start to get started. Um, but for right now, let's just welcome him as he comes and brings the word to us. Thanks, Mac. Thanks, bro. Morning, church. You guys get excited about way too much. I would say that you should be at every Sunday service. Um, but that's because Micah has more grace than I do. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at two passages this morning. So there's that one. And then also 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. This morning, I want to to preach on repentance. I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh man, really? You're going to kill the Christmas spirit? Um, this is a sermon that I preached a little bit ago for our church down in Cape. And during, I'm going I'm to speak a little bit for Micah too. Out of, coming from a pastor's heart, pastor's plan so much and prepare so much and pour over the word so much that we don't often get a chance by the leading of the Holy Spirit to sit and reflect on the words that the, the Spirit gave us for you, the, God's people. And, and that's one of my mistakes as a young pastor is not reflecting on these are words for my heart, for my soul, for my uplifting, for my study. And I remember giving this sermon without much thought to it, and both of my pastors came to me and said, this is the most important sermon ever preached at our church. And I was like, there's no way it was that good. No way. So I was traveling up to Kirksville on a Sunday evening for work. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to listen to it and see what they're talking about, because I don't know what they're talking about. I'm not kidding you. The Spirit convicted me of my own sermon. Okay? A sermon on repentance. So this morning, what I want to do is share a little bit from, the God, from God's Word about what repentance is not, so that hopefully it frees up some of the distraction as to what repentance actually is. Okay? So I want to walk us through some of the, some of the common lies surrounding repentance, this word called repentance. So we can understand and rightly believe in what repentance actually is for the Christian life. So that's my title for the sermon, Repentance in the Christian Life. Okay? 
And I want to walk through 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and the surrounding context, and then 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Okay? Let me read those for you, and then we're going to go 0 to 60 in like 6 seconds, okay? There's, there's a lot. All right? Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that one. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, put your thumb there and flip over to 2 Timothy. Paul writing to, Tim, to Timothy, a young pastor, says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, in the Lord's, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let me pray real quick for us, okay? Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see what you would have for us this morning. Open our hearts to receive your word. Father, help us to understand what true repentance is. Help us to understand what godly grief produces within us. Father, help us to understand that repentance is a gracious gift given to us by you. Not something that we can just fabricate day to day and create as if we know what to do to correct the problem of our sin. Father, would you teach us from your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor and theologian, wrote, Christians, do you have a sad resentment of other things and not of sin? Worldly tears fall to the earth, but godly tears are kept in a bottle. Referring to Psalm 56.8. Do not judge holy weeping as superfluous. One person thought he was born for no other end but to repent. Either sin must drown or the soul must burn. Those are heavy words from a guy that lived a long time ago. But he's so right. Either sin must drown or the soul must burn. That's the reality for all of us as fallen creatures. Repentance is at the core of the gospel message. It's as basic as the call to be born again. Right? Christ commanded, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the, his first public sermon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Peter's sermon in Acts, there are a couple people that come up to him after the sermon and they're like, hey, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do in response to the gospel message? And Peter answered, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke records in his gospel that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, in other words, repentance not only is it at the core of the gospel message, but it should be at the core of our ministry. 
When we proclaim the gospel in our neighborhoods, we're proclaiming a gospel of repentance. And if you don't proclaim a gospel of repentance, then I'm afraid you may not be presenting the gospel at all. It is at the core of the gospel message. And I'm concerned that as a church, holistically, I'm not talking about this church, okay? Don't, don't send me nasty emails. Hey, you, don't, you guys don't even have my email, never mind. Um, I'm concerned the church as a whole doesn't talk enough about repentance. And if they are talking about it on a Sunday morning, then there's a likely chance that they're not talking about it correctly. And so I want to try and get us to a correct understanding of repentance because for so long in my life growing up in the church, I didn't understand it at all until recently. So with this, this idea, gospel, this is the sin, at the foundation of the gospel is repentance. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that it's the foundation of the Christian faith. Either sin must drown or the soul must burn. We must, as a church, feel the weightiness of that truth. That if we truly believe the gospel, if we truly believe in what it teaches, there are people going to hell all around us. And if we are not the ones as believers who believe in this gospel and desire with earnest desire to see people saved, if we're not teaching them repentance, what are we doing? It's kind of my question for my own life. What am I doing if I'm not teaching the gospel to my neighbor and calling him or her to repentance? What am I doing? If I truly believe this, then I truly need to tell them to repent. Not only should I just tell them to repent, I should teach them what it is and what it looks like day to day. So let me just spend a little time here. Uh, most of this is going to be what is repentance not like. And then it should clear up what repentance is. And then I've got a couple applications for us. One main application, and then two ways that plays out in life, okay? So let's go. First, number one. Grief over sin is a necessary part of repentance, but it's not repentance. Okay? Grief over our sin is a necessary part of repentance, but it is not repentance in and of itself. And most of these are coming from Thomas Watson. He's got a pamphlet online that you can look up. It's about 50-some pages long. I guess it's, a, it's more like a book, to be honest with you. It's a pamphlet for back then. Um, but their pamphlets were like 100 pages. So Thomas Watson, he, he says this. He wrote that repentance is not legal terror. Okay? Um, so let me just let me paint a scenario. It's like this. It's like when you get caught speeding down the, high, the highway. How many of you have ever sped? Come on. I thought. Um, it's like when you get pulled over and you get a ticket and you're not really sorry that you were speeding, you're more sorry that you got a ticket. Come on, that's a word for somebody this morning. <laughs> you, you're, you're not really sorry that you rebelled against the law, you're actually kind of sorry that you got caught. That's legal terror. That's what Thomas Watson is describing. See, godly grief is grief over sin. Okay, look at what the text says in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation 
without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, so Paul gives us two things, godly grief versus worldly grief. Okay, so this one's free for you. Jot this down. I've got like a T-chart in my notes. Maybe this will help you. Godly grief versus worldly grief. Let me just list three things for you. Okay, here's what godly grief is like. It's Christ-focused. It's sorrow for rebellion. And it produces worship or life, as Paul would put it. Here's worldly grief. Three things. Worldly grief. Self-focused. Sorrow for a verdict. And it produces more sin and death, ultimately. That's the difference. That's the main difference between a godly grief and a worldly grief. I have a friend who likes to watch the court channel. Anybody a court channel person? Okay. They like to watch court. I, I don't get it. I'm not, I, don't watch, I don't watch much TV, but definitely not the court channel. Um, it would be like sitting in front of a judge and being scared out of your mind at the potential of going to jail for the rest of your life. You could care less about what you did. You care more about the verdict coming from the judge. That is a worldly grief that's really self-centered. It's sorrow over the potential verdict of what I've done, not sorrow over actually what I've done being sin. So there's a godly grief, a Christ-focused, God-honoring sorrow over our rebellion against Him that produces repentance that leads to salvation And there's no regret for that kind of life. Because at the end of that kind of life, we come into His presence. So it's not... Grief over your sin is not in and of itself repentance. It is a necessary part to get us to repentance. Notice Paul says that godly grief produces repentance. Not godly grief is repentance. So here's something else that repentance is not, okay? Secondly, repentance is not simply a resolution not to sin, okay? Let me me use another example. Um, I almost brought an iron and an ironing board for this illustration, but I'm not cool enough for that. So let me just explain it. Have you ever had a parent in your life tell you not to touch something because it's incredibly hot? Okay? And... If you're like me, you're not moving away from what's incredibly hot. You're actually kind of moving toward what's incredibly hot because in your mind you're like, well, how hot is it? Like, let me touch it just to find out if that's actually true. Does this remind you of the garden? When God told them not to eat of the fruit? And they actually kind of moved toward the fruit instead of away from the fruit because what God God's word was not good enough in their heart to actually believe that maybe I shouldn't do this because it's not good. Not because the fruit's not good. I'm sure it was great. I'm sure the fruit tasted great. That's not the point. The point is God gave us a word, and is that sufficient for your life? Do you believe that? So, so if you're like me, I'm like, well, how hot is it? So I decide to go touch it. And of course, what happens? I get burned. Right. She's got it. How old are you? 
Six. She's got it. I did not have it at six. <laughs> so I touched it and I got burnt, obviously. And so I decided, moving forward, from that day on, I will never touch the iron again as long as it's on. <laughs> okay? But this begs the question, was my resolution to never touch that again because it was painful or because it was sinful? That's right. Come on. Help me preach. Help me preach. Because it was painful. Not really because I rebelled. It's not really because it was sinful. It was because it hurt. So I never want to do that again because it hurt. I never want to go the speed limit because that ticket took a lot out of my bank account that I needed for other things. I don't want to be rude to my parents because I got grounded and I don't like being stuck in my room for a couple hours, so I'm not going to do that again. I'm never going to question my boss at work and be disrespectful to my authorities because that gets a write-up, and I don't, that's pain, that's a, just a painful process, and I don't like doing that, so I'm, I'm just not going to do that again. But what happens as fallen people? We do it again. Because the resolution to just simply not do that because it was painful is not deep enough into our soul to tell us that this is actually wrong. It's not because we truly understand that it was sinful. I don't want to do that because it was painful, not because it was sinful. See the difference, church? This resolution also tends to happen because we don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. We don't want to go to hell. It's not really because we love Christ. It's just because we don't want to go to hell. I see that a lot. So, it's grief over sin is not repentance. It's a necessary part of repentance, but it's not repentance. Repentance is not simply a resolution not to sin. Here's a third one. Repentance is not simply leaving some sin alone. Okay? Thomas Watson explains it this way. He explains, when a certain sin may not bring us pleasure, the pleasure that we're looking for, we just leave it alone. This was really interesting to me because I never really thought of this perspective before. Okay? Thomas Watson really helped me out with this one. He explains that there's not just an indifference toward certain sins. That, that doesn't exist in true repentance. He also explains that there, there are sins in our life that we don't commit simply because it doesn't interest us. Have you ever, have you ever found yourself saying, well, I don't, I've really never felt the need to do that. For a long time, I didn't drink any alcohol. Like, never. Wouldn't touch it. It was the devil. Okay? That was my upbringing. Okay? And I just never felt the need to do that. That's not real repentance. Not feeling the need to do something. Just kind of being indifferent towards sin. That's not true repentance. Okay? It's not just leaving some sin alone. And I'm not saying drinking is a sin. Okay? Don't, don't corner me after the service. Okay? Right? What I'm saying is that you can't just pick and choose some sins to just leave alone because they don't interest you. That's not repentance. Here's another way that plays out. 
Some have more, a more active approach than what I had. I had kind of a passive approach, just like it came to me and I was like, eh, I'm good. Some have a more active approach in this in that we don't commit certain sins because it doesn't move us up in the ranks. It doesn't get me ahead in my job, so I'm not going to do it. But if it did, I'd consider it. Some of us live like that. But it's not simply just leaving some sins alone. It's not just an indifference towards sin. Fourthly, repentance does not stop at learning of sin. Okay, flip over to 2 Timothy. Here's what Paul writes. He says in uh, verse 25, that new sentence, God may perhaps grant, and that's really important, church. I would underline that, circle that, highlight it, whatever you've got to do to remember that that is a key part of that verse. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, I typically stop there, but if you keep reading in chapter 3, he gives a description of godlessness, people who don't have Christ, people who are rebellious, speaking kind of toward the last days, toward the end when Christ is going to return and He says this, um, I'm going to pick it up in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. Also, always, listen, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but never able to arrive. So, let me break down 2 Timothy verse 25, 26 here. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth is like, is like Paul's way of saying salvation. Like it's his way of saying this is the gospel. Okay? What he's saying here is not that it's repentance and then you're saved as if you have to do repentance before you get saved. He's saying repentance is a coming to the senses. There are two parts in each of those verses. Repentance, knowledge of the truth, coming to the senses, and escape of the snare of the devil. So repentance is a coming to the senses. A knowledge of the truth is an escape from the snare of the devil. It's not like a physical thing where you like, escape physically or, or like, you're spiritually bind. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that repentance is the Spirit opening our eyes, illuminating us to the Gospel and who Christ is and what He's done for us. That is a knowledge of the truth that, is, that allows us to escape the snare of the devil, our sin, our enslavery to sin. And that's what He's doing here. And there are some people in the world who are always learning about their sin and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Escape from their slavery to sin. 
Repentance is not simply stopping at the learning. Okay? It'd be like somebody who has a terminal disease and they know everything about their disease and yet they never go to a doctor's office and learn that there's a cure. We have a terminal disease as fallen people and we could learn all about it but Christ is the cure. At some point in your learning of your sin, that should cause you to fall on your knees before Christ. That should cause you to move toward the Gospel. So I'm hoping that by understanding what repentance is not, we can see now what it is. Okay? So, so I want to offer a simple definition of repentance, okay? Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God causing us to love what we once hated and hate what we once loved, okay? It is a work of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God causing us to love what we once hated and hate what we once loved. Okay? We once hated Christ and once loved our sin. And now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the grace of God, those things are flipped in the hearts of the believer. That now we hate our sin and love Christ. See, at some point, repentance has to be more than just behavior modification. And I'm sure that many of you here, growing, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that repentance is a change of mind, right? You've heard that before? And it is. The word repentance actually means it's a change of mind. But that word it, mind encompasses just more than mental capacity. It encompasses the soul. It encompasses the heart. It encompasses our entire being. It's a change of mind in what one believes and what one worships. So, Christ said that you'll know a tree by its fruit. Okay? Faith is at the root of all of our actions. Okay, we have a really helpful diagram at my church. Um, I actually brought a few with me, just in case somebody wants to take one. Um, we call it the gospel tree, and I know you can't see it, but there's a really cool picture of a tree on here. You just have to believe me. Um, and what it, what it kind of outlines for, for us, and it's really helpful to walk through personally and then also like in counseling other people and other believers. So we have the sun up here in this corner, right? And the sun is the heat, okay? And we call heat the pressures of life, right? It's all of the pressures of life. It's like work is outrageous. The kids are going nuts. I'm sick. My wife's sick. My son's sick. It's just going around in circles, Okay? It's just crazy. Life is nuts. There's a lot of pressure right now. That's the heat. And when heat hits a tree, it helps to produce stuff, right? And so we have bad fruit on this side, okay? You know a tree by its fruit. So bad fruit we call the works of the flesh, all right? And we just walk through. When I want to figure out, hey, I've got some bad fruit in my life that my wife so graciously points out to me, 
I've got some bad fruit going on. So let me just walk through some of these questions and, and just kind of get to the root of the issue here, right? Because the fruit is never really the issue. The roots are the issue, right? If you've ever planted before, you, you ever worked in a garden, you know that if I've got bad roots or even a bad, some bad soil, I don't get good fruit, okay? Same thing with our life. If my roots are bad in my life, in my heart, if my heart's in the wrong place, I don't have good action. So, so I just ask myself some questions. What do I do? What am I doing here? Okay? And I'll walk you through, um, I'll walk you through one of mine. A couple years ago, my wife and I lost two children to miscarriage. It was devastating. I, hate, I, I couldn't, don't wish that upon anybody. Um, and I certainly don't want that to happen again. And we do now have a son, praise God, answered prayers. Okay? He's crazy, but I love him. And so my bad fruit for a long time was questioning the will of God constantly. Like, what's, why, why, why? Kind of like Job, questioning the will of God. So what do I do? I'm not in the Word. I don't read my Bible every day. I don't pray like I ought to. I don't worship well. I worship, I come, I, I, I worship, but I, it's not there. I'm not altogether there. So here's the next question. Who am I? What, is what, I, what do I do speaks to who I am? Okay? My actions speak to something that I'm believing about myself. Okay? So who am I? I'm abandoned, fatherless, left to myself. God doesn't care about me. So what has God done in a negative way in my mind? He doesn't care about me. His will for my life is not good. That's what I'm believing. So what does that tell me about who God is? The false God that I'm worshiping, the false idea of who God is in my life. Well, God is ignorant to my needs, to my life. He, he just doesn't care. He's an unloving father. And so now, you hear a pin drop. Now we're at the root. Do you see, church, that if I were to stay with the fruit and just kind of go through what am I doing, you shouldn't do that. Change your life. Change your behavior. I never get to the real problem, which is I'm believing a false gospel. I'm worshiping a false Christ. So this idea that we've grown up where repentance is simply just a change of direction, like I'm living this way and I hear a really good sermon on, you know, online, and then I'm not doing that anymore. I've just decided I'm not going to sin anymore. I just gave my life to Jesus. I'm not doing that anymore. And we never truly get to the heart to where, hey, what are you actually believing about God? Because the fruit in your life is communicating the roots are either good or bad. And so, repentance happens down here at the roots. And repentance is a spirit work in your life by the grace of God 
to get you to see, to come, it's the coming to your senses and realizing I'm not believing the gospel. I'm not worshiping Jesus. I'm worshiping myself. I'm worshiping my comfort. I'm worshiping my will and not the Father's will. That's where repentance can happen. And the Spirit has to do this in your life. Okay? I, I cannot tell you how many of these I've done trying to fabricate repentance in my life. If I just figure out what I believe in, I can say, well, I don't believe that. Obviously, I don't believe that because the Bible says this. But functionally, I don't actually believe it. I don't live that way. So at some point, the Spirit, with me and two other guys sitting around a table walking through this for like the 10th time, finally through prayer, the Spirit broke through and gave me a word in my prayer that my friend came up to me and, and so graciously said, hey, the Spirit gave you repentance there. To where finally I realized that I don't have to understand the why. I don't have to try and put God's will with His goodness and separate these two things out. That's Functionally, that's what I was doing. I believe that God is sovereign and He's in control and His will is there and I believe that he was good, but I never believed that God's sovereign will was good. And so I cried out to Jesus, Lord, change this in me. Make me believe that your will for my life is good, whether you give me an explanation for it or not. There's a promise in, the, in Romans chapter 8. All things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. All things. I don't get it. Why? I don't know, but it's promised. And I believe that God's promises find their yes in Christ. And so I worship Christ. Not the false gospel that I preach to my own heart. Not the false idol, the the false Christ that I try and worship. So, repentance, then, is really a change driven by the Holy Spirit in what we love, in what we worship, in what we treasure most. Repentance is a change in what we treasure. I hope that's simple enough for you. Okay? It's, it's simple, but it's also complex. So, So, how does this repentance happen? Okay? How do we see this change in what we treasure most happen in our day-to-day -day life? So, I want to offer just one application and then two primary ways that this plays out in life. Okay? Um, here's the application. All right? Ready? Behold the glory of Christ. Behold the glory of Christ. Look on upon Christ. Let me give you two Old Testament references real quick. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah writes of him seeing the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of Christ. And when he, when he sees the Lord sitting on the throne, he responds this way, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see the godly grief in Isaiah? 
He's grieved over his sin. He pronounces a, a, a woe, a, a, a curse upon himself because of, he, he realizes now who he is and who God is. You see his understanding of his sin. And then when the Lord asks who will go, who's going to go on mission for us, Isaiah says, me. I'll go. Beholding the glory of the Lord is what will lead us to truly repent of our sin. Because it's where we truly see who we are and who God is, causing us to believe in the truth of the Gospel and worship Him. Here's another reference. Remember in Numbers, when people were in the wilderness and the rebellion just off the charts. And God could just and did wipe out an entire generation. Okay, and, and he was going to do it. And, and Moses was like, hey, no, I'm not going to do that. Hey, you are, your loving kindness endures. He reminds God who he is. And I had a college student like come up to me and say, hey, how in the world is it that Moses can kind of talk God down off a ledge? How, how does that work? I said, well, actually, Moses doesn't really talk God down off a ledge because he had already decided from eternity past to save his people. His will is set and his plan is ever unfolding. And so when Moses reminds God of his character, God says, you're right, I am going to do this because it's bringing glory to me. This is my plan. And it's unfolding. And So Moses reminds God of his nature and his desire to save his people, which is a picture of what Christ is doing for us right now. And so, in the wilderness, these people are rebellious, and God sends serpents to bite their ankles, and God says, hey, put a golden serpent up on a staff and raise it up, and if whoever looks upon this serpent, this golden serpent, will be saved. They won't die. This is a picture of what we should be doing in our day-to-day life. Looking up to Christ. High and lifted up. Crucified for us. Beholding the glory of God's Son. So, there are two primary ways in which we can behold the glory of Christ. Okay? And, and these are just, I'm not saying that these are all, this is all encompassing, okay? God can use whatever means He desires to use to save those whom He wants to save, okay? I'm not going to put God in a box. But these are the two primary ways in which we see this happen. First, sit under faithful preaching of His Word corporately. What we're doing this morning. 2 Timothy 2. It's all about Paul encouraging Timothy to be a faithful teacher of the Word. Because it's sound doctrine that pierces hard hearts, causing people to repent. So, in verse 24, Paul writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The kindness of God that leads sinners to repentance is the sending of faithful teachers of His Word. God sends out faithful teachers who teach sound doctrine because it's by the Word of God that, that God pierces, the Spirit pierces hearts, leading them to repentance, bringing godly grief, sorrow over sin, 
that is Christ-centered. Secondly, surround yourself with faithful community, fluent in the gospel. We talk a lot at our church, and as we set out to plant another church, it's one thing that we're really focusing on. It's called gospel fluency. Okay? When you're fluent in another language, you don't even think about it. You just start talking. Right? And it's amazing to me to see kids grow up and they just start talking in their native language. They're just fluent. Right? That's, we should be gospel fluent. We shouldn't even have to think about, wait a second, is this, is this gospel-centered? I don't I'm not really sure about that. It should just come out. I'm not even lying to you. I'm going to share your story. Okay. We were interviewing, work at a business, and I was interviewing somebody for a job, and I asked her, where do you go to church? Any HR people out there? I could have gotten sued, y'all. I, it just comes out of me. I don't even care. Sue me. Gospel fluency. Surround yourself with people who are fluent in the gospel. So here's where we look at the context of 2 Corinthians 7. All right, jump back to verse 5 for me. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, that, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I write to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Paul's encouraged by the community of believers, by the sending of Titus. Titus was encouraged by the community of believers. And he wrote 1 Corinthians to, these, to this church, and it grieved them. They realized, hey, we're not believing in the Gospel. I have godly sorrow over my sin. And Paul's like, hey, I don't want you to like sit in grief, right? Sorrow is a good place to sit, but it's not a good place to stay. And they didn't stay there. The Spirit used that godly grief, the, the, the Word of God to give them that grief that led them to true change in worship. So ultimately, it can't be just simple behavior modification where we say stop it and we just change direction or we decide not to do that ever again. And it has to be ultimately a change in what we worship, in what we treasure most. That is true repentance. When we renounce the false doctrine we're currently believing 
and grab hold of the true gospel of who Christ is and what He's done for us and worship Him instead of the heart idols we have. Let me uh, invite the, the band back up real quick. We'll sing a song here. But I want to share an answer John Piper gave because I know the question in everybody's mind, and it was in my mind too, what's the assurance? What's the assurance for me when I sin again? Right? Because I'm going to sin later today. I'll be honest with you. Okay? The Lord knows that. I, I, I don't know it, but I I'm, can bank on it. So what's the assurance? And John Piper gave a really good answer to that, and it's better than I could answer, so I'm just going to share his. Says, so where in the world does assurance come from? The answer is that even though introspection is commended and wise up to a point, the bottom line of assurance comes when you stop analyzing and you look to Christ. And you look and you look and you look and you look until Christ himself in his glory and his sufficiency by reflection, as it were, awakens a self-forgetful yes to him. Your best moments of assurance are not the moments when you're thinking about your assurance. Because the very moment that you're thinking about your assurance, you have the capacity at that moment to doubt your assurance. This little voice, whether it's your conscience or the devil, is saying, you think you have assurance, but... And so the answer comes, look to the cross. Look Look to Christ. And if you're able to look to the cross... If you're able to see Him as sufficient and satisfying and powerful, able to carry all your sins, and you find yourself drawn out of yourself to say yes to Him, that's what you want. You're assured. He is your assurance at that moment. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The witness of the Holy Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit enabling you to look to Christ, to feel Him as your own, to see Him as precious, and say, Galatians 2.20, personally, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and gave Himself for me. It's that me that is the settling of our assurance. So, Piper's bottom line answer is this. I can tell you lots of things about why Christ is sufficient for you and why your sins have not put you beyond the pale of forgiveness. But in the end, it will be the work of God in your life awakening you to see Him as completely sufficient for you personally. And I think that's the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't whisper in your ear, you're a Christian. Because you could doubt that voice. You could say, I think that was the devil, or I think that was my pizza from last night. The witness of the Holy Spirit is not a whispering in your ear. It is the work of the Holy Spirit enabling you to look to Christ. So church, repentance is a change in worship. It's a change in what you treasure most. I pray that you would behold the glory of Christ in the coming new year. That as you start to make resolutions, 
for 2019 that you wouldn't just simply resolve not to do something anymore or to do something to escape pain, but that you would behold the glory of Christ, see Him as beautiful, feel Him as your own, and truly worship Jesus instead of whatever stronghold is in your heart right now. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the cross. Thank You that the cross means freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the bondage that we so often want to go back to. Father, would Your Spirit fall fresh on Harvest Bible Chapel South. Would your spirit fall fresh on hearts this morning? Would your word fall hard and strong so as to break hearts of stone? Father, as we go into a new year, would we just not make simple resolutions? And we would just, I'm just going to leave some of these sins alone this year. Maybe I'll do better. And Father, would our focus in 2019 not be behavior modification, but would you, by your Spirit, and because of your grace, gift us true repentance to where we're looking at the roots of the issue. Where we're looking at our hearts and what are we believing about Christ and what are we worshiping in our hearts and functionally. Would your Spirit break us of those things? Cause us to worship Christ in his fullness, high and lifted up and ready to save. For those of us who are believers, would you reassure us by your spirit that Christ actually died in my place for me? And that is our reassurance. Would you remind us of that truth this morning?